You're listening to an audio resource from Vineyard Church of the Rockies in Fort Collins, Colorado. We are joining God's mission, transforming all things, and you're invited. To learn more about us and how you can connect, please visit votr.church. Last week, we started a new series. We started a new series, and it was titled, You've Heard It Said. The series is it's really modeled after the words of Jesus, how in the Sermon on the Mount, he took these ideas, these religious and cultural ideas, and he addressed them, and he said, hey, 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 folks, hey, disciples, hey, followers, you've heard it said, and then he kind of filled in the blank that part of their cultural system or their religious system, and then he pivoted, and he said, but I say to you, you've heard it said But I say to you, he always did this as a way to point out kind of the incomplete or maybe insufficient ways that people were living according to these old religious and cultural systems. You've heard it said, live live this way, or you've heard it said, treat others this way. But I say to you, I'm raising the spiritual bar. I'm inviting you even deeper in. And there's a new way to think about how to interact with God and with others. And if we apply this same way of preaching and thinking to 21st century America, I asked this question last week, I'll ask it again this week and every week for the month of April, how would Jesus respond today? How would he use that phrase in our day and age if Jesus attended our churches If he walked around your workplaces, if he entered into our schools, what kind of phrases would he hear? What kind of cultural monikers and how would he pick up and then how would he teach to the people? One of the growing trends that Jesus would inevitably run into in our day and age, especially with all of the social media backlash, is the phenomenon known today as cancel culture. Cancel culture is everywhere, and Jesus would pick up on this, I think, fairly quickly. But again, nothing is new under the sun, right? Cancel culture is just a new way to deal with problems in a more, in a more modern or tech-centered twist. Now, Jesus knew about cancel culture before it was called anything special. They tried to cancel him. Over and over and over again, they tried to silence him. They rejected him. They gathered teams of people to actively work against him. In one of his most transparent moments, when people were leaving his ministry in John 6, Jesus even looks to his disciples, and just with a vulnerability you can read between the lines, he looked at them and he said, are you going to leave too? Ultimately, they crucified our Savior. They hung him on a cross, they buried him in a tomb, hoping that they could cancel his ministry and that everybody would simply move on and forget about this Messiah. But as we know, he rose from the dead. That they couldn't cancel his ministry, they couldn't cancel his life, and they can't cancel the kingdom of God. But cancel culture is still around. It's still everywhere. In today's day and age, if you don't like someone, you can simply cancel them. If that person made a product, you can cancel that product. If you don't like someone anymore, they've been in your life for years, you can just cut them off and move on and try to get them completely out of 
your life. And now with technology, let's say you meet a 35-year-old who you want to cancel, but they're squeaky clean. All you have to do is look at their Twitter history from when they were 12 years old and they were raging with hormones and they said something stupid. And now you can cancel them because of something they said 20 years ago. Cancel culture is everywhere. We cancel people all of the time. We say, you're done. I'm over it. I'm over you. I'm moving on. And I think we've probably all seen this in our culture and what can happen and the damage that it can do. Recently, I thought I was going to get canceled. I had to take a lie detector test. Um, Natalie did too, okay? We both had, I, I realize it does sound a little strange, but we're we're, uh, we're working with the police department here in Fort Collins, and they're looking for police chaplains. And in order to spiritually care for the officers, you have to go through a whole bunch of tests, background checks. And then one of the tests is you sit down with a detective, and they hook you up to a machine, and they give you a lie detector test. Most interesting and bizarre thing I, maybe I've ever done, right? And, and what's fascinating is that it's not really like, I don't know if you like watch Blacklist or you know, Jason Bourne movies or anything. It's nothing like that. I was really surprised that I didn't have like things all over and I couldn't like push my, my uh, foot onto a thumbtack to make the stress leadings level out so they could never tell if I was lying or telling the truth. None of that works. Turns out they just know when you're lying. However, when you get ready, it's really strange. When you get ready and they hook you up to the machine, you, have to, you do have to answer and ask all the questions so you can get a baseline like on how good of a liar you are. So like, is your name Jeff Faust? Yes, okay, I passed that one. And then you get to the baseline and they tell you to lie. Like you, so this is just, a, it's a confession moment before the entire church. I recently lied as a pastor to the police officers, but it was part of the, it was part of the test. They made me look at a light switch and tell, me that it, and tell them that it was a different color than it actually was so that they could tell I was lying. Well, I freaked out a little bit because I, I was taking it really seriously. I convinced myself that the light switch was yellow. And so when they asked me, is the light switch white? I was supposed to lie and say no. And so I said, no. And I'm telling you, it flatlined, man. It, there was no, the detective's like, oh, that's really weird. That, that records you're telling the truth. And I'm like starting to have a complex. Like, am I still kind of psychopath? Like, I, I can't tell the difference between truth and, and what does this mean about me as a pastor? I can just so easily lie to a detective. And he leaned forward and he said, Mr. Faust, this is too easy of a question. Have you been speeding on the road lately? <laughs> Think about statues, limitations, like I'm starting to sweat. <laughs> and he's like, remember, I need you to lie. And so same tone, same demeanor. I lean forward and I go, no. <laughs> and he goes, Psh. It's like, all right, Mr. Faust, we are ready to proceed. <laughs> We now have your baseline at just how bad of a liar you are. But it was, it, was a, it was a fascinating experience, and they really, they dug up all of my past. And they dug up all of my past, and I had to answer all of these questions about how bad of a human I had been. If you know my testimony, you know that I grew up very far from the Lord for most of my life, and so I've done a lot of really bad things, and I had to, like, talk about all these things. Natalie had to do the lie detector test. She was done in, like, 15 minutes. <laughs> I was in there for an hour and a half. Because when you answer yes, you then have to explain. <laughs> this is the reality. I thought I was going to get canceled. I thought I would be able to be a pastor at the vineyard, but not a police chaplain. 
I finally interrupted the detective. We were like 20 questions in. I interrupted him. I said, hey, this would be a lot easier for me if you would start every question with the phrase, since becoming a Christian, have you ever? Can you, like I've done some bad stuff, but I've been redeemed. Can you read the questions that way? And he goes, no, he can't read the questions that way. (laughs) I don't think he'd ever been asked before, but I thought I'd give it a go. But we just had to work our way through. And at the end, he said, is there anything else you would like to say? And I said, do I have any chance at all? Like, do I have any chance at all? I've done, you have to realize, I've been redeemed. My life has completely changed because of Jesus, but I have done all of those things. Are you going to cancel me? And he said, no, you're fine. We're, We're mostly looking for people who have incredible integrity, who are leaning into the truth, who are willing to share Um, their past with us, and you have passed, so you're not being canceled. But again, part of how this has worked out in my life is now you're just afraid. At any moment, you could just get dropped. You say the wrong thing, and you could just be canceled. You do the wrong act, and people just move on, never to spend time with you again. Cancel culture is just about everywhere, and we know Jesus, if you were walking around earth today, he would see it, and he would be compelled to respond. He would be compelled to respond to the cancel culture. And because of Scripture, when you read the Gospels and when you you saturate yourself in the Word of God, you know how he would respond because he's actually handled it before. He might not approach the world in the same way, but when he talked to his followers, when he talked to believers, he addressed things like cancel culture because this has snuck into religious thought. Our title for today is simply, you've heard it said, you're dead to me. You're dead to me. This is one of the iterations of cancel culture. This is one of the phrases that people might use today. You're canceled. You're you're done. You're dead to me. In in the Christian world, in, in, in the church world, sometimes it's translated I will never forgive you. I will never forgive you for that. And this is a tough phrase. It's a tough phrase because some of us have used that phrase before. In a moment of emotion or a moment of incredible pain, we've used that phrase before, but it's a painful phrase because maybe that phrase has been used against us. And and at times, it may feel like the safest route to maybe throw those words out there, especially if you've been, or if you've, you know, experienced these unspeakable things that that, that it has so, have been so damaging in your life that, that you've been led to believe that life would be easier if you would just cut someone off and move on. Never to think about that again, never to think about that person again, and to completely remove them from your life. I realize that for some of us, this message may be triggering in a way. It might be really difficult, and so I would invite you to just know my heart on the front end, that I'm wading into these waters with incredible humility and prayer, a lot of personal experience about the very thing that I'm talking about, and equal amounts of faith that God will move this morning. This is a challenging phrase, it's a challenging thought, but despite the challenges, we can't shy away from things like this because it's still a phrase that we have to deal with. It's a phrase that we have to talk about. 
Because cancel culture or the phrase we're using for today, you're dead to me, or the Christian iteration of that, I will never forgive you for that. See, those things would have never been heard from the mouth of Jesus. Our Savior would have never taught his disciples to think or to act in that kind of way. Jesus said it back then. He would say it to us again today. You've heard it said, you're dead to me, but I say to you, forgive and keep on forgiving. Forgive and keep on forgiving. If you're a follower of Christ, you're dead to me doesn't fit into our faith. You're dead to me or any of its variables. I'll never forgive you. You're done. You're canceled. I'm cutting you out of my life. None of those phrases work for a disciple of Christ. And I do want to offer a quick qualifier before the message kind of gets away from us and I lose some of you, especially if you've been in really dangerous situations before where maybe abuse or addiction or assault have been part of your narrative and prevalent in your life. I want, I want to say it clearly just so that everybody is on the same page. I do believe that healthy boundaries and wholehearted forgiveness can coexist. It's not one or the other. I do believe healthy boundaries and wholehearted forgiveness can coexist. There are certain cases, undoubtedly certain cases in this room or from folks viewing online where for your own safety and for your own healing journey, you need healthy boundaries. But again, when you... When you thumb through the pages of the Gospels, when you study the person of Jesus Christ, you can never allow healthy boundaries to mute out this desire for forgiveness and reconciliation. As Christians, we can't have cut off in all of the relationships when it's simply not working out well for us. As Christians, we don't get the freedom to not forgive which really isn't a freedom anyway. Because unforgiveness has all kinds of baggage that it's going to bring in its own right. Forgiveness is simply part of the disciple's life. It's part of the disciple's life. It's part of a kingdom ethic. Even when healthy boundaries exist, your boundaries can't include you're dead to me. They can't include, you're dead to me. If you look at the words of Jesus from Matthew 18, verses 21 and 22, you begin to see what Jesus is talking about and how he addressed this. 18, verse 21, then Peter came to him, came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. 70 times seven. Seven. You've heard it said, you're dead to me. Or you've heard it said, I'll never forgive you for that. But I say to you, forgive and keep on forgiving. I read this passage to my children the other night, and of course they did what some of you just tried to do in your mind. What is seven times 70? It's <laughs> for the math whizzes, you know. For those of you who haven't had enough coffee, it's 490. 490 times, but of course it would be really strange if we just all kept markers, like we pulled out our phone and we're like, all right, you got another one, and you, that's not what Jesus means when he's talking about this, right? 
The context of this scripture is actually really interesting. If you go home and you read this scripture preceding the one that I just read, the context of this scripture, if you read it in your own time, you'll see that in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, Jesus is actually teaching about how to correct a believer who has sinned against you. He's teaching his disciples about how to do that, how often to go to them, how to, how to function in the body of Christ, and he even establishes some healthy boundaries. If these things continue, it's okay to respond in this kind of way. And then at the tail end of that conversation, Peter goes to Jesus and he says, well, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this, Jesus. How often should I forgive someone? And you saw in the scripture, Peter starts with this crazy number. He starts with the number seven. He starts with this really symbolically holy number. You know, for the, for the Jewish culture, seven was a symbolic number of perfection and completeness. And so he's kind of playing teacher's pet. And he says, how about seven times? Trying to demonstrate how well-learned Peter has become. And, 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 the, and the dual purpose behind that, it's not just that seven is a, is a symbolic and a Jewish number, but actually the rabbis in Jesus' day, the rabbis taught you only needed to forgive someone three times and then you can move on. You give them three chances and then you can move on. That's the limits of how often you forgive someone. So not only is Peter giving a super spiritual answer, but he's giving an answer that's more than double what the rabbis would have taught in that day and age. And Jesus says, no, that's, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. And then Jesus goes even deeper, even more dramatic. He does the unthinkable. He says 70 times seven. And if you know the Old Testament, like these early disciples would have known, it would have brought you right back to Genesis 4. Jesus paraphrases the Old Testament. He takes this passage from Genesis 4 where there was a man who killed a younger man and says this phrase 70 times 7. And Jesus says, this is how my forgiveness works. There are no bounds. There are no limits. The person that you can imagine that doesn't de deserve forgiveness at all, even this old man from the Old Testament who had murdered somebody, I'm going to pluck that verse out and put it into this teaching and tell you it's 70 times 7, and there are no limits on the type of person that you're called to forgive. Forgive and keep on forgiving. You've heard it said, you're dead to me, or I'll never forgive you for that, or maybe I'll forgive you once more, but if you do it again, it's on you. And Jesus says, but I say to you, there are no limits. There are no limits. Forgive and keep on forgiving. Now, we wrestle with these passages often. And some of us don't know what to do with scriptures like this, right? Like we have a hard time with passages like this. We don't always like scriptures like these because we think about justice, right? Well, what about justice? It feels like justice isn't served if I'm always so quick to forgive, it feels like justice isn't served if I forgive and keep on forgiving, but somehow, just like boundaries, justice and forgiveness can coexist in the kingdom of God. And we have to be careful not to ignore the words of Christ. Forgive, keep on forgiving seven times, 70 times, forgive. 
The phrase, you're dead to me, or simply cutting someone out of your life, it's just not a biblical way of dealing with pain. Cutting someone off and the gospel of the kingdom, don't, they don't gel, they don't work together. I have a personal story in reference of this. It's a personal story with a tragic ending. And I debated and I prayed about whether or not I could skip the story and not share it. But I felt like the Lord wanted me to share it and I'm willing to kind of put my life on display one more time and one more time and one more time in case it helps even one family. Many of you know I grew up in a home with addiction and mental health issues, physical and emotional abuse and all kinds of anxiety and pain, you know that I've struggled with many of those things or I've been the object of many of those things. And I do have great memories of my childhood, but I also have really, really hard ones. And because of the abuse and the addiction, cutoff was kind of a, a simple way, so we thought, to deal with life's problems. When the tension would get too high, when the anxiety would get too high, we would simply cut that relationship out of our life and we would try to move forward. So I understand the allure of cutoff, especially in moments of deep pain. I'm just telling you from personal experience that it doesn't work. And any family systems theory would tell you that the anxiety actually remains. It might go dormant for a season. You might pretend that you can ignore it for a little while, but it begins to leak out in other unforeseen ways. Even social sciences are beginning to prove the biblical truth that forgiveness is essential to healing. But in my family, cutoff was the way we dealt with things. Both my brother and I were addicted for a number of years. And by God's grace, I have been clean for 18 years now. We celebrated that a few weeks ago as a church, but my brother was never able to kick his habits. And addiction, if you've not been around it before, can make you do some really silly things, some painful things, painful to yourself, painful to those who you truly love. And my relationship with my brother really had to begin to shift. It had to begin to change. We had to create some healthy boundaries because as Natalie and I started to have kids, there were certain circumstances that weren't quite safe for a child to see, to witness, and to experience. And so my relationship, it morphed and it changed. My brother and I started to basically just have a phone relationship or we met in public places. We did have boundaries. But not everyone in my family shared this way of understanding. Some decided that the best course of action was to simply cut my brother off, treat him like he was dead to the family. No family holidays, no emails, no texts, no phone calls, no recognition of the family ties. And being a brother and being a pastor and being an ENTJ on the Myers-Brig if you know what that is, I had a really hard time with that. And so one family Christmas, which I don't recommend bringing up all the family baggage at Christmas time, but I had had enough, I brought it up and I said, we need to talk about this. We need to figure out what we're going to do because the way this is working in our family isn't truth according to the gospel. And if we're going to all call ourselves Christians, we have to start acting a little bit differently. 
You can imagine that didn't go over very well. I nearly got cut off myself in that moment. But I doubled down. And I, and, and I said, guys, this isn't, this isn't right. Look, create healthy boundaries. Do whatever you want to do, but send an email, send a letter, send a text, send something to establish communication lines so that we can at least have an open door towards forgiveness and we can progress towards reconciliation. But I was shut down again. So I said the really hard thing. And I said, if we don't begin to move towards this, my brother is going to die and you will lose your chance for forgiveness and reconciliation. And that was the end of the conversation. And my brother passed three months after that. And there were only a few of us in my family that actually talked to him. Most of my family didn't only have to deal with the pain of the loss, but now they had to deal with the pain of the shame and the what could have beens and should I have called him or what could I have done. I'm thankful that I maintained a relationship even if it wasn't perfect, but the truth is unforgiveness just keeps everyone in bondage. It's not just the person who's created the offense. Unforgiveness keeps you in bondage as well. Cut off or cancel culture doesn't solve anything. The phrase, you're dead to me, simply doesn't fit in the kingdom of God. And so if you're here this morning and you're part of the narrative that includes being cut off yourself, let me just say to you, you are welcome in our church. This is a church where you can belong. This is a church where you can find forgiveness and grace and connection. And also, if you're in our church and you've maybe experienced cut off or you've created boundaries that have potentially gone too far, then use my story as maybe an encouragement to move towards forgiveness and reconciliation once again, I don't share that story as some way of manipulating you to act before you're ready. I share it because it's real, it's personal. I share it because my hope and my prayer is that it will lodge some of us free from these rigid boundaries towards the kingdom. Let me ask you this morning, what is maybe one step that you could take towards forgiveness? You don't have to go zero to hero. It doesn't have to be all taken care of in one day. What's one step you could take? You know, the Bible says that maybe the pinnacle is meeting face-to-face -face and laying your hands on that person and declaring forgiveness over them because it sets them free and it does something to your heart. But some of you shouldn't do face-to-face -face for your own safety or you're not ready for face-to-face -face yet. So think about a text or an email or a letter. And if you can't click send, then journal it out and write it out. And with prayer, begin to imagine with God, what would it look like to forgive? What would it look like to participate in the gospel in that way? And if even that is too much, God will honor your prayers if they sound like, God, I, I want to do this. I want to step into this, but I am not ready. Will you help me? Help me forgive and help my unforgiveness. That's an okay prayer if that's where you're at. But let me encourage you to take at least a step towards forgiveness and a step towards reconciliation.
If you're struggling to find out how you can do that, then I think it's important to remember how much Christ has forgiven us. In order to find the power, in order to find the grace to begin to move towards forgiveness, it's always important, it's essential even, to rest your heart in the forgiveness that Christ has offered you. And from that place, you may find that it's easier to forgive those who have hurt you. Remember that you were once far from God. Yet through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have been brought near. And to this day, when you turn your back on God, when you slip up and make a mistake, when you sin against God or you sin against others, the Lord is ready to forgive you in the moment, immediately drawing you back into his love. There are simply no limits on how much God will forgive you. Lamentations 3, 22 to 23 says this, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. His mercies are new every morning for you and for everyone around you. His forgiveness never runs out. It knows no bounds. No one is outside of its limits. There's one more I want to share from Isaiah 118. I love how one Isaiah I love how Isaiah 118 starts because he just draws a line in the sand from the get-go. And with boldness God declares, allow these words to be spoken over your heart this morning. Come now, the Lord says. Come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them as white as wool. Forgiving others becomes a whole lot easier when you know you have been totally, completely, and utterly forgiven yourself. Totally, completely, and utterly forgiven yourself. Would you receive his love today? Would you receive his forgiveness today? And would you offer it freely to those around you as it has been freely given to you? Let's pray.